Once again, if you'll please open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18 as you're doing that. How grateful we are to the Lord for His gift of voice and music. How delightful our worship is because of the gifts He's given to our brothers and sisters. We pick up in this amazing scene. Verse 20 of 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's give our attention to God's word. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but the Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord, word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the, the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, how we ask that for the sake of your Son and for the honor of our triune God, as you know our hearts, as you know the false gods to which we have given ourselves this week, would you have your way with us as you did with the Israelites of old? Draw our hearts back. We ask that we would see a vision of your majesty your purity, the goodness of your grace, the clarion beauty of your call to us to come and find our full and final rest in the one whose blood was shed for us. Do so now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as no doubt we read this passage, it is one of the most tension-filled and dramatic stories in all of Scripture, certainly of the Old Testament as well. And as one scholar put it, the fundamental theme is the conflict between the triune God of the universe and the false gods that we humans too often craft for ourselves to allow us to move away from the one who has made us and whose face before whom we live. The gods that we use as an excuse to push the living God away. Well, it's been three and a half years since there has been dew or rain. Imagine what would happen to the economy and to the state of Mississippi without rain for three and a half years. It's bone dry. There's famine in the land. There's prophetic silence. Elijah has been in exile. The prophets have been in hiding. But all of this was making a mockery of the claims of Baal, who was the god of fertility, the god of fruitfulness, the god of storm. And the living God was now calling to account these false gods, preparing for a showdown. And the idolatry and false worship of Ahab and Israel had to be exposed. It had to be publicly and decisively proven false. To quote another scholar, there was to be a God contest in all of Israel. Well, the great drama in our text is really this. Will the real God of heaven and earth and of Israel please stand up? Some of us who are a little bit older can remember the game show in which that took place. Well, the Lord is this morning going to call you and me to examine our idols as well. If at the end of this morning's sermon you conclude, wow, wasn't it a great thing that the Lord called those Israelites back to himself? You've missed the point. The Lord is calling us back to himself and examining our idols and the false gods that we have been drawn to. Well, there are three truths that I want us to grasp as we come and and look at the favors of God in our text and as we come to the Lord's table. First, I want you to be deeply encouraged by the quiet work of the Lord through his faithful servants, even the likes of you and me. 
to be encouraged by the way the Lord works constantly and quietly through his faithful servants, even the likes of you and me here at Pear Orchard Presbyterian. Well, we meet a marvelous man named Obadiah. Have you ever wondered, as you've read the scriptures, I cannot wait to meet this man or woman in the kingdom of heaven? I want to meet this man. Obadiah, a man in verses 3 and 4 about whom we read, who was the, stu- the steward over Ahab's household, we're told that when Jezebel was cutting off the prophets of God, that Obadiah found two caves and hid 50 men in each of those caves and provided them bread and water. And we're told twice in the passage that he feared the Lord greatly. So he's a highly ranked civil servant, but under the most wicked of the kings in the history of Israel, he goes quietly about his business while Ahab is seeking to stamp out true worship in Israel. He's seeking to preserve the word of God in the land of his own people. There's a deep contrast between Ahab and Obadiah that our hearts need to grasp this morning. While Ahab has been liquidating the prophets of God, Obadiah is quietly, courageously, and at the cost of his own life, should it be discovered, he's protecting the word of the Lord in the land of Israel. The second contrast is that while Ahab cares only that his animals have fodder so that they might be kept alive, and he cares nothing for his own people, that they would be nourished on the prophetic word of God, which he is seeking to stamp out. What is Obadiah again doing? Obadiah is seeking to save the possibility that in the land of Israel, the famine of the word of God would go away. And God's word would reign amongst his people once again. Ahab cares only for the end of a physical famine. But Obadiah cares for the end of God's word. The famine of God's word amidst his people. There are two implications that I want to draw out here for us this morning. The first is, as we learned in the very first sermon several weeks back... And when he opened this Elijah series, no matter how wicked things are around us, the Lord is always at work, often quietly and often in unseen ways, using his servants to work out his holy purposes. When your eyes can't see it, and when our faith is so dim that we will not believe it, That does not hamper the work of God in the midst of his people and in the midst of his created order. Ahab's rule is crumbling amidst this famine and idolatry and quietly, almost imperceptibly, with only the prophets who are in hiding knowing about it, Obadiah protects the prophetic word of God. And so, no matter how discouraged you might be in your Christian life today, no matter how discouraged you might be as you look around at our nation and our world, God is at work through countless of his servants, many of whom are in this place this morning. And he is doing his business. He is working out his holy will. Be wonderfully encouraged. 
But the second implication is a challenge to each of us. That each of us as believers has both the opportunity and the calling to be modern-day Obadiahs. What do I mean by that? That you and I, as those who fear the Lord, as he did, we take our place in kingdom work and we quietly go about doing what we can to advance the gospel in the midst of this evil generation. With the calling and the gifts that God has given to each and every one of you in this room and those watching online, all of us are called to be a modern-day Obadiah who employ our gifts in the kingdom of God quietly, sometimes imperceptibly, and by many never even known but by the Lord himself so that we're engaged in kingdom opportunities. There are a host of kingdom opportunities if only you will have ministry eyes to see them. So let me give you some examples, and then we could multiply this a hundredfold. Whether it is evangelism with your neighbor, and what I might call soft evangelism, where before ever you speak the word of Christ, you're building a relationship and earning the right to be heard. Evangelism with a neighbor, volunteering in the many, many parachurch ministries, meeting with a regular prayer group that focuses not on navel-gazing, but on kingdom priorities. Serving at Vacation Bible School this summer, a mission trip like what is happening just this week, being a generous giver with the gifts and the talents that God has given to you. Some of you here in this congregation are blessed with the resources that God has provided. Are you engaged in kingdom work with those resources? Cooking a meal for someone who needs help or encouragement, ministering to a family with special needs, befriending someone in the midst of bereavement, and the list goes on and on. All of us have Obadiah-like opportunities to serve if we will simply open kingdom eyes to see them. So let me ask, where are the Obadiahs in our congregation who have not yet understood that they are in Obadiah and have a calling and an opportunity and gifts to put to use in the midst of the ranks of the kingdom of God? God's quiet, humble, unheralded, unheralded servants yet vital to his church and to his kingdom. Let me ask you a practical question, not connected so much to the theological foundation of this question, but really to the practical end of it. What if there had not been an Obadiah in that day? And what if the prophetic word had passed away? Now, we know theologically that God would have never allowed that to happen, but he used Obadiah so it would not happen. How does God want to use you, O Obadiah? In this place, in this corner of the kingdom. Notice that Obadiah labored under the knowledge that if it were discovered that he was doing so, he would have lost his life. Obadiah is a challenge to us, an encouragement and a challenge. Are we willing at some level to make the sacrifice of our lives 
to be modern-day Obadiahs. Well, in the second place from our text this morning, briefly, ever so briefly, but importantly, what is the source of trouble most often in our churches, in our cultures, and in our nations? What chiefly brings discord, ruin, misery, and pain? We find the answer in this brief conversation that we hear between Elijah and Ahab. Obadiah is finally encouraged by Ahab to go to, or finally encouraged by Elijah to go to Ahab and to tell him, I will appear before you, you will see me soon. And so Obadiah communicates that to Ahab. And in verse 17 we read, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord God and followed the Baals. So Ahab meets Elijah, and he has the audacity to look at the prophet of God and say to him, you, you're the troubler of my people. And Elijah says, no, you've got it backwards. You have brought all this trouble. You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord God and you have multiplied false gods among the people. You are the troublemaker. So what is the chief cause of misery in our churches, our cultures, our nations? What is it or who is it that becomes the troubler? What was the cause of Israel's affliction in this day? Well, we're told back in chapter 17 and chapter 16 that Ahab's father, Omri, to that date had done more evil in the eyes of any of the kings before him. And he discipled his son Ahab quite well. And finally Ahab, as I mentioned several weeks back, became the Olympic gold medal winner of idolatry and false worship. He abandoned the express commands that God had graciously given to his people to regulate their lives. And the price of doing so was exceedingly great trouble. So brothers and sisters, whether it is in your individual life, your family, your workplace, our civic laws, our state and national government and leadership, when we make a God out of our own desires and turn our hearts away from the Lord's blessings in his unerring word, it will produce every sort of grief and misery and pain and trouble. Look around you. Look within you. The Lord will only allow his name and his life-preserving commands to be mocked for so long. Now, hasn't our Lord Jesus spoken to us plainly? He said to us, if you love me, finish the statement with me, you will keep my commandments. Let's turn it around. Jesus is saying, if you do not keep my commandments, ergo, you do not love me. Listen to the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 2. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, 
is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. A little bit later in the same chapter, John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The troublers in Israel, most often the troublers in our churches, the troublers in our culture, and the troublers in our nation are those who have turned away from the law of God and in so many quarters in our own country now who have never even known the law of God, let alone turn away from it. And who have made a God of their own desires, who call evil good and who call good evil. Would you like to know one of the most stunning ways in which Good being called evil and evil being called good is happening in our own country right now. In our United States Congress, there is a bill being written right at this present time. It is a bill that would allow for abortion on demand up to the moment before death. So in other words, the only thing standing between a baby that is nine months old and the geography has not changed from an inch within the mother's womb to an inch outside the mother's womb is a moment in time. And there are at least 12 dozen of our congressmen and women who are moving towards authorization of a bill that would come before our Congress to codify this as a right of the people of the United States of America to murder children in the womb one minute before a mother's water broke and labor started. And you ask why we are a troubled nation. Yet those of us who would be means of blessing and honor and peace in the many, many societies in which we travel and work and live and play, we will be those who love the law of the Lord. For the commands of the Lord, remember this, the commands of the Lord are not given to us as a people of God that we might obey them in order that we would earn the pleasure of God. But no, we see them, that they're the reflection of our great God. And we live them out as the honor of his pleasure and the honor of his beauty and the honor of his majesty. And so we live out his commands as a true reflection of our Father. Who's revealed to us most beautifully in the face of Jesus. Listen to what the law of the Lord produces, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More desirable are they to be than gold. That's what the word of the Lord produces. Reviving mercies, wisdom, joy, discernment, righteousness, the reverent fear of God, and great rewards. All of these things flow downhill to churches, nations, people, and cultures who honor the commands of God. Third and last, as we come to the Lord's table, let's admit the daily spiritual struggle for the allegiance of our hearts and of our lives before the Lord. Let's admit that the text is calling us to examine our hearts as the Israelites had to examine their hearts and to see the struggle that is ours as well for the allegiance of our hearts and our lives. It comes in these forms. Who will you follow? Who is worthy of your worship? Who receives the honor for the blessings that are in your life? To whom do you run for help when affliction strikes? Who bestows upon you these life-giving good things? You see, every day that you and I wake up, a multitude of false deities are vying for the attention of our own hearts. And our passage gloriously and vividly shows us the true and living God in whom we alone live and move and have our being by the goodness of his grace. The drama of our scene is in part because of the odds of this deeply stacked contest against Elijah. How so? 850 prophets over here one prophet over here. Mount Carmel had been for a great deal of time one of the home places of Baal worship. In other words, for quite some time, Baal worship had its center or one of its centers on Mount Carmel. We might say in modern terms, this was a home game for Baal and his team. It was his home stadium. The altar to Yahweh, we are told, was in ruins. It had been destroyed years before. It had not been used in we don't know how long. It had to be rebuilt in order for this contest to take place. But remember what that communicated to the Canaanites. To the Canaanites, whose altar on Mount Carmel was used daily, Yahweh's altar had been in disuse for years, even decades And among the Canaanites, that communicated that Yahweh was weak and impotent and unworthy of any attention. And so Elijah rebuilds the altar. What was so appealing about Baal worship to the Israelites and to the Canaanites? Well, it was the religion of the king and the queen. And so the religion of the king and the queen and the heads of state makes it more persuasive. And Baal worship had a theology that was attuned to the agrarian needs of their cultures. Baal was the god of storm and fertility and he was the one who brought crops 
and children and fruitfulness. Dr. Ralph Davis says it was Baal who sent forth lightning, fire, and rain. He gave grain and oil and wine. He could revive the dead and heal the sick and grant the blessings of offspring. What could be more relevant to the life of a Canaanite farmer anxious over his wheat crop and his cattle shed? When Baal was in top form, the world was pregnant with possibility. Finally, Baalism packed an appeal to sensuality. Sexual rites were built into the liturgy. There was always a religious whore to be had at Baal's shrine. But you see, our text cries out, who is the real God of the blessings that we receive in this life? Are there many gods or is there but one covenant-keeping God? And Elijah declares in verse 21 that you must choose. You cannot have God and mammon at the same time. You must choose Yahweh or you must choose Baal. How long will you limp between two different opinions? You see, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, is not an idea to be toyed with as the Israelites were toying with him. He's the almighty king with whom we have to do. The Lord who reigns over every square inch of creation, every nanosecond of time. And may I say it this way, God was fed up with the idolatry of his people and the foolishness of the Canaanites and the falseness of their gods. And so the contest was had. Two altars. Baal's altar with hundreds of chanting, screaming, cutting, slashing prophets from morning till evening. And Elijah mocked their God. And if you can't laugh at this, you take things too seriously. Listen to Elijah. Your God's on a journey. Your God's on the toilet. Your God's asleep. Your God is like Rodin's the thinker, and he's musing. He's deep in thought. Elijah's mocking these false gods. In verse 36 through 38, you see the beauty of the moment. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, in other words, God of covenant promises and faithfulness, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And fire fell from the Lord. You remember in the Old Testament, the Lord prescribed that his worship should consist in part of burnt offerings where animals were carved up and their blood was poured on the, alt the horns of the altar and their parts were, were burned as an aroma before the Lord. And here in our text, Elijah repairs the altar so that he might prepare his sacrifice, God's sacrifice. And literally, the Hebrew tells us that he didn't just repair the altar. The Hebrew communicates that he healed the altar. In remaking the altar, he was healing, as it were, the worship of God, the true worship of God. 
with 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel. And the sacrifice is offered up, and God receives the sacrifice and consumes it and the altar and the dirt and the water in a moment. And the evidence is that he alone is the true God and there is no other. Now you must not miss this theological connection. What does this moment in redemptive history have to do with the book of Revelation and the end of our days? Well, it has everything to do. You see, God's confrontation through Elijah with Baal worship and the false prophets is an anticipation of the great day of the Lord when he will bring history to a close and he will vindicate his power and his glory and his honor through the coming again of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. If you're taking notes, write down Revelation 19 and verse 11. Otherwise, listen to the word of the Lord. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name with which he is called, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in a fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why is it that when people who are not believers in the gospel nor believers in Jesus Christ love to say that Jesus is love? They would never admit to a text like this that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is one day coming as the captain of the hosts of God. And he will do across the face of the earth what Elijah did on Mount Carmel. And he will bring his vengeance and he will bring his perfect justice to bear upon all who are outside of his gospel. And he will bring his perfect mercy and his unmitigated grace to everyone who has bowed the knee to him. That's what this text has in part to do with the book of Revelation. And so you see, the point of it all is that when Elijah brings this to pass by the power of God. It's not simply that God is wanting the false gods of Israel to be put away. But look at verse 37, the last of the phrases, and that you, O Lord God, are turning their hearts back. When God pours out his refining fire, it is always double-fold. On the one hand, it is judgment upon those who reject him, but on the other hand, it is cleansing fire and renewing grace for his people. And so this morning, as you come to the Lord's table, remember that as this altar in that day was, was poured upon multiple times by water, so that there could be no trickery. 
the altar which the Father chose to be his son at the cross was covered in his blood that he might wash away and make fresh and make new your soul even in this hour. That you would come and say, I lay down my false gods. I lay down my idolatry. I cleanse in the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Come this morning to the altar covered in the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are here at your table at your invitation to die with you at your cross and to rise with you in your resurrection. Feed us with yourself, living bread. Slay the idols to which we have clung. Cast down the gods who often steal away our affection for you. And become our only joy, we pray in your sweet name. Amen.